Hello and a big welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Britt Edwards. As we said before, WA Real is here to bring you real stories from fascinating people right here in Western Australia. Stories that have something to share and something you can learn from, and today is going to be no exception. Today, my guest is Charlie Gunningham. Charlie has been described as the doyen of the Perth startup scene. Oh dear. Originally, <laughs> originally, you described me as that. Where's that come from? Uh, I can't reveal my okay. sources. Oh, uh, my hopefully, he's listening. Um, <laughs> originally born in Bath in England, and then grew up in a farming area of Marlborough. Much like myself, he fell in love with Australia through backpacking and vowed to come back here one day in the future. Mm-hmm. Charlie worked for several years as an economics teacher in England, Singapore, and then Perth before going on to complete an MBA at UWA. Following this. Charlie went on to co-found the realestate.com Aussie Homes before selling this to Rewa, and then went on to lead the digital transformation of business news, rising to become the CEO. Um, Charlie left this earlier this year to set up Damburst, which continues his focus on digital disruption, and very recently has become one of only 22 commercialization advisors for the Department of Industry and Innovation and Science right here. It's quite a mouthful. It is, isn't it? <laughs> it is, isn't it? He's also yeah. done a stint on the board for Cancer Support WA. Yes, uh, Charlie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bryn. Thanks for having me. So I understand that in addition to all this great business startup and economics background, you also have been a drummer in a band. Yes, yes. This was in You've Singapore. Done your research, okay. Yeah. In Singapore. I did. So uh, what sort of band was this? And have you got any rock and roll stories? Oh, say? my goodness. Uh, it was... Very much an aging, middle-aged rock and roll show band. Right. And I was teaching... Was it in your this, own stuff? Or no, no, I was teaching in Singapore, right? So this band had been going for about 10 years and had quite a reputation amongst the expat community. So it played uh, a few dinner and dances for Singapore in the hotels, right? Um, but the trouble with that is if there's something in Singapore culture, I'm married to a Singaporean, so I can say this, called Dine and Dash. Right. So it's rude in Asian culture to stay after the last meal has been served. Now, right. trouble is, a show band like us, rock and roll show band, yes. right? we come on after the meal. Right. So a dinner and dance, right? Black tie do at the Hyatt in, uh, in Singapore. You can imagine the scene, yeah. 300 people, right? All the Singaporeans leave as soon as, the, as soon as we come on. So I'm sitting on the drum kit, <laughs> and all I'm seeing is the, is the opening of the uh, ballroom, and everyone's just leaving. Oh, and we were just starting our first set, and we've got two more sets after this of half an hour. And uh, except for the set, maybe there'd be like three tables of expats going, yeah, you guys are great, and then yeah. we're dancing away. But we went down a storm with the sort of expat community. And it had been, as I say, it been going for about 10 years, and I somehow just blagged my way into it. We were all teachers at the same school, and a guy called Andy Mansfield-Page was uh, leaving. He was the drummer. And someone heard me just messing around the drums one night, and I'd been there a few months. And they tapped me on the shoulder and said, I hear you're a drummer. I said, I'm really not a drummer. I said, no, 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 no. Come and have an audition. Now, I've been, you know, I can sing. I can hold a tune. Don't ask me to sing. And I somehow just banged around the drums, and they had a bit of discussion. He went, yeah, he'll do. Yeah. And so I was in Rough and Ready Roadshow for five years, which was great fun. And, in fact, it brought me to Perth. The, The first time I came to Perth, Christmas 91, I, I'd, been in, I'd been in Australia because my older brother had moved to Brisbane in the 80s, so that was the backpacking thing you alluded to earlier. But in 91 was the first time I came to Perth. Uh, and four of the band, there were seven in the band, I think four of us came and did a sort of scaled-down skiffle set 
on Murray Street Mall around Christmas time, all dressed up as rockabillies, right. playing rock and roll. Um, and we all put on like London accents and said, oh, right, you want some music? Yeah, all right. <laughs> you know, and all that. And, did, and then people started giving us money. I had a violin case. People were really nice. These people in Perth are really nice. Yeah. And we were here for a week or 10 days and we made $800 each. Just in loose change, people were putting in our violin case. Paid for the airfare. And I thought, how nice is Perth? Going to live here one day. And that's what happened. So, yes, I was in the band for five years. It was great fun. We did 25 gigs a year. And I played a lot of cricket. And I was teaching in this expat school. And, and I was a young, free and single. And it was a great life. And I met my wife in Singapore. And then together we moved down to Perth 20 years ago. Awesome. Mm. Awesome. So during that time, you, you were teaching economics? Yeah. What, what got you into teaching economics? Uh, originally, I mean, when I go to school, it's probably a bit of a cliche. You probably want to be the teacher because you're being taught at. I mean, some people do. Well, I did anyway. Yeah. I want to be the teacher. I want to be giving the rules, right? And I used to organize my local uh, family's kids who were a bit younger than me and, like, teach them, teach at them, whether I was teaching them cricket or yeah. whatever, in the school holidays. Teach at them. Yeah, it's like, te- like be the teacher, right? Yeah. And uh, play, the te- play being the teacher. I suppose some people play doctors and nurses. I... <laughs> Played the teacher. And then I went away from that idea as I got into into teenage years, and I thought I'd be an engineer. So I chose, like, maths, physics for my A-levels. And then economics was, like, the only one that fitted. I went to a quite small school. There weren't many options. So I tried economics, loved it, ended up really getting interested in economics. I had a great teacher, probably, uh, which made the impact. And then I sort of went away from engineering and came back Right at the end of my A-level year, um, yeah, e- economics teacher. So I went and did an economics degree and then did a uh, teaching degree after that and then straight into teaching economics, just north right. of London. And that went on for how long? So I had three years in a school in Bishop Stortford, which is a bit of a sort of commuter belt school, East Hertfordshire, for those of you who know England. I lived just over the border in Essex. And I did that for three years, but I always sort of, Wanted to come to Australia, right? right? So I was thinking, shall I do an exchange? I'd actually applied for the exchange program where you can literally swap jobs and houses with an Australian teacher. They'll come and teach economics in your school and use your car and um, live in your house, and you'll go and live in their house and drive their car and teach in their school and do an exchange. But uh, while I was thinking about that, my old teacher training uh, professor, Dr. Whitehead, and he actually had white hair as well, right. Dr. David Whitehead. He contacted me and he rang me up and said, I know you want to come to Australia, but I've just been doing some consulting for this school in Singapore. It's an amazing school. They're looking for an economics teacher. Would you consider Singapore? And I sort of went, nah, I don't really want to go to Singapore. I want to come to Australia. He said, look, it's a really amazing school. Look, let me just send you the details. So I could have cut it off then you know, and said no. Amazing the choices you make, because I might never have met my wife. Yes. I'd never been to Singapore, right? Um, but I went along for the interview and got the job. And then this is this happened over the summer holidays, so it took a few months. Got the job, and then suddenly I'm thinking, oh, crikey, I'm off to Singapore, you know, research Singapore. I met the headmaster, not at the interview, I met the deputy head, but I met the headmaster a few weeks later and thought, this guy's brilliant. David Watson, amazing guy, and his wife. Very entertaining. Took me out for a club just off Oxford Street in London. And we had a, a very funny evening meal, right? Fantastic. And I thought, 
well, this guy's the headmaster and I know the school's good. Hey, I'll go there for a couple of years and then I'll go to Australia. But the band, meeting my wife, cricket, loved the whole expat lifestyle, living in Singapore. You know, teaching is amazing because it allows you to basically go anywhere around the world, mm. be paid to do so, and you've got these amazing holidays. So we'd go, we'd think nothing, and it sounds like you're showing off now, but we'd think nothing of going for a week to Nepal during a half-term half holiday and trekking in the Himalayas. It's just what all the teachers did. Or in a weekend, just drive up to Malaysia and go off to Rawa Island or Tiamat Island. You're, you're leaving school at like 4 o'clock on a Friday. By 8.30, you're drinking a nice cold beer on a tropical island. It was just an amazing lifestyle, really. Do you miss it? Uh, it was not a place that you'd want to settle down. It's Same a very right. transient society, the expat community. Yeah. It's great fun. It's very intense. Mm. You meet a lot of people with a lot of personality. But I think you either stay there, you know, three or five years or you stay there 45 years. Right. Like you go native and that's it. You're there. Um, it's an expensive place to live. We were paid quite well, but to buy a car was, you know, 50 grand, 100 grand. Um, just for a secondhand car, a new car, Toyota Corolla, 125 grand. Here it's 20. Here it's 120. Um, alcohol, very expensive. Jug of beer. Back then, this is 25 years ago. 50 bucks. I'd go out with $150 on me. If I was going out with a couple of mates for a few beers, 150 bucks. This is 25 years ago. That's quite a lot right. of money, right? Yes. And you'd blow it easily it just in two or three hours on a few chunks of beer, right? And a meal. Loved it. And I spent longer than I thought I'd be, you know, seven years, married, etc. Ended up playing for the national cricket team, which was amazing. I, I was a reasonable cricketer, not great cricketer. But, you know, play representative cricket, play in the band, have these amazing holidays, meet Lisa. You know, it was a great, great time. But not a settling down place. So coming to Perth was do an MBA, buy a house, have kids, right? settle. Put and down. put roots down. And, uh, and, and we just fell in love with Perth. When Lisa came to Perth a few years later, I mean, we went to Melbourne. We, you know, my brother's over on the East Coast. We, we loved New Zealand. In fact, Auckland was a close second. Probably it would have been Auckland or Perth, but it was just that extra long way away, Auckland. Yeah. Perth, same time zone as her mother, you know, in Singapore. In fact, she's up there at the moment with, with Katie now, and my kids are up there in Singapore this week. Um, and maybe slightly not as far for my parents to come either. Mm. They've passed away now, but then they were coming through to see my brother Robert in Brisbane. They'd come through Singapore on the way and on the way back. Yes. It wasn't much of a detour to do Perth as well. Yes. And when I had kids, they could come see the kids. And I was very glad that that, that happened because my kids still remember my parents. Super. Yeah. So you mentioned the MBA. Mm. So that was, that, was, or that was already a part of the plan to move to Perth? Yeah. Uh, MBA for a few reasons. So it's obviously a business degree. I was economics trained, but I was teaching a lot of business and accounting. I've always have felt a bit of a fraud. Economics, fine. I was economics trained. Business, I'd never been in business before. How could I be teaching business? Just the other initiative. Teaching marketing. Tell me the difference between economics and business. Well, economics is, is a science. It's got... You know, it's got rules and laws and theories. Uh, theories and equations and graphs and diagrams, right? Business as a whole, I mean, there's a little bit of science. There's a lot of art to it, yes. right? 
but you know marketing and accounting it's 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 actually fairly different so how do you set up a business how do you finance a business how do you get customers whereas economics is more about the economy right interest rates and monetary policy yeah, and all that sort of stuff so i mean they're linked but um you end up teaching business because business took off in popularity i suppose from the 80s into the 90s um i ended up teaching more business than economics and then accounting and marketing and and really i felt really how can i be doing this so i thought i should go and do an mba second that, reason was that to um fill in the knowledge gaps that you were teaching a little or bit. was it with a specific view to leaving teaching no it's not a specific view to leaving teaching at all which is actually what happened it was probably three reasons. Firstly, take a pause on my teaching career. I'm in a new town, Perth, great way to meet people. Um, I actually got a part-time job at Hale, so that was great. I was teaching a couple of economics classes at Hale and business, of course, yep. doing my MBA full-time. Um, but I thought I was, you know, I was already been a head of department in that school in England. I was already a head of department in that school in Singapore fairly quickly. And then it also happened to Hale. I was ended up being a head of department fairly quickly. The next jump was probably deputy head headmaster right or some company some schools had head of faculty but really once you've been head of department it's really would you go sideways to head of year which i actually did do in singapore but then there's quite a big jump to deputy head and headmaster yeah and to make that jump i thought i needed a good i thought an mba would be a really useful thing for a variety of reasons there're not many teachers with mbas yes so when i'm in that interview right Secondly, you're running a business when you're a deputy headmaster or headmaster, hmm. you know? So to have all that knowledge of how to run an organization properly, properly, I think was useful, not just something to have on the CV, but actually valuable because you're running an organization, a fairly sizable organization with take somewhere like Hale School, you know, this must be about 50, 60 teachers, must be several millions of turnover. Mm. It's a fairly sizable private organization. And then you've also got boards to report to and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So you've got to now know your accounting deliver. and marketing. Now it comes to deliver. Um, okay, it's a not-for-profit, but, you know, it's, it's, it's an organization of, of some size. And I'd seen a lot of... Um, a lot of teachers get promoted into management positions and some were brilliant at it and natural at it and some of the goddamn awful at it. I right. mean, shockingly awful at it. Great teachers. And that's the weird thing about teaching. The, the, the better you are at it, the less you do of it. Because yeah. as you got prom get promoted, so there are gaps in your timetable because you have to do management. It's the same with a lot of jobs. A lot of jobs. Who's going to teach you that? So I thought for all these reasons, an MBA sounded sense to me. Okay. And... It ended up being, yes, it wasn't what I expected, but it ended up, I went back into teaching with my MBA, thought, brilliant, done that, head of department, Lisa's got a job in the city, got the car, got the two, got the two cars, got the house, yep. all set up. I've set up my roots, plan, better go on and have kids now. And after, about a, after about a term, I was bored to tears. In what way? I... And I, and, and I mean, literally, I was frustratedly bored. I, um, nothing against Hale. It's one of the best schools I've been inside, but I think the MBA had turned something on inside me right. and that maybe was there latently. And I just felt I've got to go and use this. And I know that just teaching at the school, I mean, I would say just teaching. It's a great job, but I've been doing it for 13 years. I've had three jobs on three continents. I felt. Before we had kids, 
If I don't go out and at least try to do something else, I was pretty sure I'd regret it later on. Yeah. And what are the, uh, but I didn't know what the other thing was, hence the frustration. Mm. And I've got to tell you my Dave Medner story. Can I tell you my Dave Medner For story? Sure. <laughs> um, this actually happened. You won't believe this, listeners, but this actually happened. So around this time, so I'm, I'm, I've, we're now talking Easter, just after Easter 99. I've graduated with my MBA. I got a letter from the school saying I'm the top student. I'd never topped anything in my life. But crikey, I'm the top MBA student. I'm not thinking teaching is a future career. At least for now, I should try something else, but I don't know what. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, some Hale teaching friends of mine have organized a night out at Barry Humphreys at the Regal Theatre. And as we turned up, we're in the second row. And I'm going, who organized these tickets? Barry Humphreys is well known for ripping into the audience and making them part of the entertainment, something I find quite uncomfortable. And I know my Asian wife would loathe, right? So I'm already feeling a little bit uncomfortable. Now, the first half, he bounds out. He does his Sandy Stone and his Les Patterson and all his other characters. But I get this uncomfortable feeling that he keeps looking at me. And, of course, what he's doing, he's an old pro. He's just checking out a few victims for the second half when he comes out as Dame Edna. So there's a break. He comes out as Dame Edna. Hello, greetings, everyone. Right. The lights come up on the first 10 rows. And you're now feeling incredibly under the spotlight and very uncomfortable and very hot. And rather than going down the first row, he immediately starts on the second row, asking people what they had for dinner that night. So they go down and he stops with me and Lisa and says, what have you, what do you have, darling? And I went, chicken, something like that. And I don't know, people laughed. And he just kept asking me questions. He said, oh, there are a lovely couple here. What's your name, darling? You know, Charlie, Lisa. Oh, we've got to get some. I look like you need some feeding up. Let's get some food. <laughs> so at that time on stage, all pre-planned, a lady comes out with a silver salver with a golden phone on it. And Dame Edna picks up the phone. And you can hear through the speakers. She calls the... Um, the Regal, no, not the, we're in the Regal Theatre. So over the road is the, um, what's that pub right on the corner there, Hay Street? Oh. That one. Yes. Can't remember the Can't name. Can't remember the name. That one. We should yeah. know. But anyway, that pub over the road, right, from the Regal. Um, come to me in a minute. Having a senior moment. Anyway, uh, I've got this lovely couple here. I think they need a meal. Can we have delivered a chicken meal, please, with some salad? Would you <laughs> like some white wine, darlings? Or Chardonnay? What year? And all that. So he hams it up. And my friends are digging into my ribs going, oh, you're in for it now, mate. He carries on with his act for 20 minutes. And then 20 minutes later, a little up on the side of the stage, a little table's put up, you know, with a red checkered um, tablecloth, three three settings, out comes the salad, the wine, the chicken pasta, everything. Oh, the food's arrived. Now, where's my lovely couple? Now, I'm thinking, oh, dear. This, this is not going to be, this is going to be rather interesting. Uh, I mean, I'm used to getting on, to, on stage and performing, right? In the band, being a teacher. Yeah. But I was more worried for Lisa. Being Asian, another thing I think a lot of people would be aware of is something called face. Yes. You understand what face is? Like, yeah. you don't want to lose face and you don't want to lose face publicly. Yeah. Now, being humiliated on stage is the ultimate losing face. Yeah. So Lisa comes up with me. Yeah. And bless him. Barry Humphreys is an old pro. He instinctively knows she's feeling very uncomfortable. She puts her, he puts, he or she, <laughs> Dame Edna, 
Yeah. It's a she, I suppose. Yeah. Puts her hands around in a very maternal, motherly way around Lisa, gives her a smacking great kiss. There weren't selfies in those days, but he got someone to come up and take a photo of us. Yeah. And it's lovely. We're all smiling. Lisa's got this big sort of beautiful lipstick on the kiss yeah. on the left cheek. He sits us down. He he talks to us like he's again he's 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 our aunt. Yeah. And we have a lovely meal with him on stage while he continues his act. Brilliant. And it was just the most brilliant. And I just relax and eat some pasta and drink all the wine because <laughs> I'm you know a bit nervous so I'm drinking the wine. Meanwhile, he rips into other people. He yeah. gets them on stage, right? Now, the reason I tell the story is that was an amazing night I'll never forget, but it was that night when I went home when Nick, this Swiss guy I'd met on the NBA, mm. left a message on my mobile, on my answer phone, said something like this. I remember it really well. Charlie, it's Nick. We're going to do this great Aussie home thing. It's going to be online real estate on maps. It's going to be awesome. You and me, baby, ring me back. Right. And that was the same night. So I ring him back. We talked for hours. We work up a few ideas and we go and see some MBA professors. And before we know it, you've got to understand in 99, everyone was setting up dot coms, right? Yes. It was the new millennium. The new thing to do. Yeah. And I suppose there were all these dot com billionaires, your Yahoo. It's actually before Google. No one had heard of Google then, but Yahoo and eBay and, you know, these guys. Um, Amazon, absolutely. And everyone was just investing or setting up dot coms or whatever ridiculous valuations as we were to find out 98 percent of them had no business model and didn't survive beyond the tech crash of easter 2000 mm. but a year earlier it was still you know a bubble going up and we we're going to the new millennium and the y2k bug remember that yep. what a load of nonsense that was and it was all like new millennium and, and this is how business is going to be done and the internet's taking off in, in, in a business way more than just sending emails and looking at websites and stuff. So I suppose I got all completely caught up in that. Mm. And I still had my full-time job, head of commerce at Hale School. Right. So I sort of, Nick and I treated it as a bit of a project, a bit like we were on the MBA. And I thought that there'd be a door shut in my face and, oh, well, I won't be able to do this crazy AussieHome.com yeah. Aussie idea. But Actually, it was the opposite. More doors were opening. We found that Perth was a center of mapping expertise. We're right in a center, a global center of GIS technology. So if we wanted to do properties on maps on the internet, yep. this was probably one of the best places to do it. And blah, 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 blah. All these sort of things came out. And this is seven years before Google Maps. So you've got to remember, this is 20 years ago, coming on for 20, 18 yeah. years ago now. All right. Right. Seven years for Google Maps. Everyone now just uses Google Maps and mapping on real estate sites, of course. But back then, it's a given. real estate sites were pretty poor and none of them had maps. Yeah. So we thought we, I think we were. I haven't found an earlier example of a map-based real estate site. So that was us, AussieHome.com, map-based real estate site. Awesome. And then we ran around trying to get real estate agents to sign up to our portal. Just before we go a bit further <coughs> into that, is I've had um, a number of friends who have gone and done MBAs or considered MBAs. Hmm. Is it um, the people that meet in the environment you're in, or is it the course, or is it a mixture of the both? Oh, it's definitely the contacts, yeah. I mean, the, the course is great. I really, really got stuck into the course. And I suppose I was running them parallel. I was sort of teaching part-time and doing an MBA. And yet, looking back on it now, 18, 20 years on, I gravitate towards the MBA friends. Which yeah. sort of should have told me, 
I was probably going to end up in business. Yes. All my friends were from on the MBA people, not so much the teaching side. Yeah. And what was it about them? That- the con- I don't know. I, I, I thought going in, how can a school teacher, economic school teacher from England via Singapore, even cut it on an MBA? I don't even know if I was going to survive mm. the MBA. Um, but in those first classes, I loved the buzz. And, you know, some teachers were better than others, but there was uh, one guy, Professor Andre Morkel, who ended up in being one of our first investors, and Nick and I, definitely a mentor. Mm. He ran entrepreneurship. Uh, you read a case study, and if you didn't read it, you would die <laughs> during the three hours. He'd start with this massive whiteboard with nothing on it, and he'd just turn up and go, so what do you reckon? With his hands in the air, and hands would go up. And it was just like, bang, 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 bang. And he'd start filling up the whiteboard. And three hours later, you've learned so much. Case study approach, absolutely brilliant. Hmm. Apparently, it's how Harvard run their their courses, right? Yes. And Andre, um, South African guy, used to go and lecture in Palo Alto in Silicon Valley and stuff. So he was fantastic, inspiring. So I just got into that. And... I found I could cut it with these guys, you know, I, and I could even get quite good grades and top the odd unit and get through it. But 20 years on, yeah, it's the networks. Yeah. So the people I've met and the people I'm still bumping into who through the MBA, especially time, in Perth, yeah. are fairly – once you get into the networks in Perth's business community, it's quite a small community. Right. There's a few very, very powerful people. Yes. You know, sort of 20, and you can probably get to know most of them. And then from them, their networks – and then perhaps you become part of the community as well. Yes. You know, and, and I found, I think at its zenith was uh, when I was CEO of Business News because I knew it wasn't me they wanted to meet, but I could ring up pretty much anyone as CEO of Business News and who wouldn't want to meet the CEO of Business, Business News? News? Yes. Like, because they'd like to be featured in Business News, but yes. also the MBA helped. So both of those together, it was, it was awesome. Yes. The course was great, but it was the people you met. People you met. Do you think that, that still holds true? Made. To today, if somebody was interested in doing it, then definitely, definitely, the course is worth it in itself, and you get out of it like a sewer as much as you put into it. Yep. Right. So I really got in. I really got stuck in. I think it's probably easier to do an MBA full time if you can afford it. Um, and immerse yourself. Than try and do it part time on top of a full time job and having a family and traveling and other things. Mm. Uh, most people obviously do it that way. Um, probably easier to afford that way. I was fortunate that coming out of Singapore, I had the wonderful uh, CPF, which is like the super in Singapore, which you can take with you tax-free when you leave. I didn't realize I went to Singapore what a good good, good thing that was. Nice little asset just growing for you. You can take with you when you leave. Well, that afforded the MBA, got us the house, set us all up when we came here uh, and probably allowed us, therefore, to take the punt on on the crazy Aussie home venture as well. Cool. Mm. So with the Aussie home venture, it took 10 years to, took 10 years of building it up. Is that correct? Before you finally sold it? Yeah, to- I'd say probably three stages. The Perth, yeah. most businesses take 18 months to get on their feet, right? Yeah. It took 18 months until I think we were cash flow positive. Yeah. We were just bumbling around. What, what on earth were we doing? I was an economics teacher from England. Nick was a hedge fund trader from Zug in Zurich, right? Yeah. What on earth were we doing? I mean, he'd run, he's 10 years older, he'd, he'd run his own business, but he hadn't been in business before, nor had I. Neither of us had real estate experience. I think we owned one property each, the one we bought when we came here. We weren't from here. 
We didn't go to the fancy pantsy private schools. We didn't have those networks. We had no IT experience. What on earth were we doing? So, you know, it was just like we were thrown together and it did take 18 months to even work out how this business was going to work. And it took five years, I'd say five years to get profitable. And, you know, rather than just the occasional profitable month or the loss making month, solidly profitable such that after five years, Nick and I looked in the bank account and there was more than a hundred thousand dollars worth of money there that was sort of spare. Yep. Right. Because we'd been hand to mouth up to then. Yeah, I was going to say, how did you live during those periods? We didn't pay up ourselves very much. Yes. And there were times in the dark early years, certainly 2000 was a tough year, when I was about nine months in, went 10 months in, 12 months in, when I didn't know how we'd actually make the month out, let alone the year out, how we'd make payroll. Yeah. Now, a lot of businesses have that situation and you get a lot of sleepless nights and it's really tough. Yeah. And there were times when I didn't know how Aussie Home would actually have a positive outcome. Hmm. I couldn't even imagine a scenario in which we'd got in such a hole, all the money we'd raised had gone. Yep. Then we'd raised some more and that had gone. Really? No one was going to give us any more money because the dot-com crash, yep. we were like pariahs, dot-coms, yes. right? Um, the internet wasn't really big enough. It, the real estate agents weren't getting money inquiries. I don't know how they stuck with us, but bless them, they did, Right. And I think the thing that saved us is we were just, we just wrapped our arms around any client that would give us a go. Yeah. And do what we could for them. And they thought, Oh, these crazy guys, we'll give them a, we'll keep with them, you know, and they're actually very loyal. Our clients were wonderfully loyal. And by the time realestate.com came here, which is 2002, we had just about sorted out what we were doing and we had web development. We even had a magazine. We were doing photography, floor plans, anything we could do just to try and keep the revenue coming in and pay our bills. Yes. And by the time we got to five years old, then the internet was working. We had 150 real estate agents. You know, we would eventually get to about 350 agencies. So once you got to that stage, we were covering all our costs and plenty mm-hmm. and every new real estate agent that joined us was just pure profit because although it was five years hard slog to get there, once you get scale on internet business, it's awesome because you basically give the real estate agent a username and password. They load all up the properties. They do all the work. They keep them up to date yeah. and we charge them money. Right. It's a great business model, but not until you get scale. How did you get through those dark times? Oh, yeah, it was tough because my parents were also had episodic bad health periods. In 2003, two friends of mine and my next door neighbor died of cancer. You know, it was really tough. And then in 2001, oh, I've got our first baby. In 2003, second baby. Now, I, I'm paying myself a salary. That would be enough to spend, send anyone back to a PAYE job in security, <laughs> would it not? There were times, Bryn, a year in, I thought, what on earth have I done? I could be teaching my, my, my nice little class or actually be on holidays and being paid to be on holiday. I went, this is amazing. You know, what on earth have I done giving this up? But I think there was always enough light at the end of the tunnel. It was always like, well, this is just starting to work. It'd be such a shame if we gave up now. And we had awesome shareholders. So we had a dozen or so shareholders who were very um, patient. We had a couple of very cool 
high net worth individuals who gave us a lot of emotional support. And although I didn't want them to lose their money, it didn't worry them as much as maybe it worried me. Right. It's funny. I mean, if there's something there about having a, 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 a solid experienced team around. You. Yeah, definitely. Nick's Nick, Nick had some brilliant ideas. One of his best was to have an advisory committee. That was genius. Yeah. He said, Charlie, we'll need the emotional support because there are going to be times when it's going to be tough. Yes. And we had five people on that advisory committee who we all admired, three of whom actually were also investors. And we'd have, it was like a quasi board. And we'd go to them a couple of times a year. And we'd always feel like we'd had our tires pumped up afterwards. Because you're running around looking at your shoelaces and what they do is get you to look at the horizon. Where, yes. are, you, where are you going with this business? What are you trying to do? Right? Yes. And it isn't the be all and end all. It's just a business. You just get so wrapped up. I had so many sleepless nights, a mm. lot of stress. Um, and probably what keeps you grounded is a wonderful wife and the cry of a baby. Yes. And the fact that the sun comes up and we live in paradise. So it does help. Living we're fairly in fortunate, really. Yes. You know, what's the worst going to happen? I'm going to look a bit embarrassed to go back to teaching. Well, really? That's, you know. Interestingly, I think if we hadn't had shareholders, let's say Nick and I just plopped 50 grand in ourselves, right? Which could have been like a sliding doors alternative universe. Yes. I wonder if we'd have given up earlier. I wonder if it was the fact that we had shareholders we didn't want to let down. So and advisability. Yeah. I wonder if that kept us going because we didn't want to give up for them. Hmm. It's interesting. Uh, that could very well be the case. Even though it was extra stress and responsibility, perhaps it worked the other way and kept us going. Yes. You're putting it out there. You're making yourself accountable. Yeah. And I think all businesses need to go through some dark times. We never, ever wanted to return to those again. And in... <laughs> And by year five, when we paid dividends, I'm really proud of the fact we paid dividends every year after that. We made a nice six-figure profit. You know, we turned over a million, blessed over a million dollars. We only ever had six or seven staff. It was a nice little business, chugging along at about 20% growth a year, nice and manageable. Mm. It wasn't hockey stick growth by any means. Um, we did try to make various attempts to get out of Perth. We, we had trips to Melbourne, and we had people who were interested in doing it in Darwin and even Singapore. And for a while, we even had a guy licensing our technology in Jakarta. But we never really grew out of Perth. But Perth itself, once we got past five years and got scale, was was, was super profitable. Yeah. So it was, it was good. But we'd been through those tough years. So we enjoyed the good years. Yeah. But that gave us a discipline that we wouldn't fall back, I think. Right. Made me appreciate cash flow. <laughs> and cash burn. And cash burn. And the difference between that and profit. Yeah. Big difference. Yeah. Super. So then some years later, you sold the business. Mm. The question is why? Yes. Why would you sell a successful business after yeah. 10 years? You've got it up and running. Mm. It's a cash cow. By then, Nick had taken an exit about year seven. We had some new investors in and we um, really cool new investors. And the opportunity was to the original investors who'd had a couple of years dividends, but was would you like to have an exit opportunity? Here's some guys who want to come in and uh, they're happy to buy you out at this price, pretty good price. Um, and so we, about two-thirds of the originals sold. Nick sold about a third. He said, look, we'd also had – we're very different We're very different people, yin and yang. So there would be times – That's why it worked. <laughs> probably, but there would be times when I'd want to kiss him and there'd be times when I'd want to throttle him yes. and probably him me. Yeah. 
And I, after five years or seven years, I had a pretty clear idea how it worked and what I, the, where I wanted to go in. And he had an idea where he wanted to go into. And what happens is because you're both decent people, you end up compromising for each other. So you do neither strategies. You don't know which one worked, hmm. you know. Um, so in the end, he said, look, he saw some money on the table and he said, look, I'll, I'll sell down some of mine. I'll exit. Let you be managing director. Wonderful move, actually. It all, it was great. It was good, good timing. What was good about that is probably saved our friendship. Right. <laughs> and what it also meant is in those final three years, um, whenever we were approached by someone to buy us out or real estate.com are doing this or so and so is doing that, I could just get in the car, go down and see him, have lunch. And because he'd been there from the very beginning, he totally understood it. He was like this amazing person to go and bang ideas about. Because he totally got it. Mm. And like the next level advisory report. Yeah. So we got to 10 years and we had a 10th year birthday. And my dad had passed away and my mum wasn't very well about a year later. And that often happens. Um, I mean, they'd been together 57 years. And what often happens, uh, and no one really tells you this, but you get to sort of middle age and you end up being the care sandwich, right? Where you're looking after the elderly parents and you're looking after young kids. Yeah. And you're stuck in the middle. You're the care sandwich. Right? No one <laughs> not, tells you about I've that. I've not heard this. Yeah. No one I've tells you about that. No, I've got very healthy parents. But it creeps up on you. It'll happen yeah. to you, Bryn. Yes. You will, you will get to the care sandwich. And I've got a brother in Brisbane and I've got a brother in Halifax in Yorkshire and my parents live in Marlborough in Wiltshire, right? Yeah. And they're still in together in a big house and dad's had a stroke and he's half blind and he trips up and mum's had a mental illness problem all her life. And it's like, oh, accidents waiting to happen. And every time the phone rings, I'm thinking, oh, God, what's happened now? You know, so you have all that going on. Dad passes away. Mum gets into a lovely home near uh, my old my brother in uh, Halifax. And about a year later, and it's a, again, it's a common thing that happens after the excitement of the funeral and all the families around and everyone's supported and she gets a new place. It's all good. But about a year later, you realize you're on your own, and and often she got a bad cold, and often it, we went through the home, and about eight of them ended up in hospital, including my mum. And I think she checked out. She basically refused to eat for three months, three weeks. I didn't know half of all this, but Paul rang me and said, I'm not sure if she's going to survive. She really hasn't, hasn't even needed anything. And, uh, they don't force feed people these days, right? It's not Victorian England. They don't put tubes down your throat and force you to eat. If, yeah. and, and look to bless her. If she wants to go and be with dad, that's totally understandable. Yep. She wants to check out. That is her yes. Her prerogative. I saw that with my grandmother. Yeah. But I said, what can I do? Can I, I'll get on the next plane. He said, well, if you want to do that, that'd be great. So I remember leaving here in February 2010. It was 34 degrees. I flew overnight into Manchester and it was minus six. And I'm wiping snow off the car. <laughs> Hire car. And I'm driving up to Halifax over the M6, the tallest motorway. The highest motorway in England is a blizzard. And I get to Paul and I sort of wash up and check out and have lunch. And then we go, he says, look, I'm going to, it's, um, it's quite shocking. She's sort of in the fetal position. She's quite thin. She hasn't eaten really for three weeks. Um, just prepare yourself. I mean, okay. Walked in, sat by her bedside and tapped her on the shoulder. And she looked up at me and she looked tiny. She looked up with these sparkling grey blue eyes and she went, Charlie. And I went, Yes, mum. Can I have a yogurt? 
and my brother fell off the chair. He went, what? The blue-eyed boy from Perth appears, and now she's eating. Right. It was probably the circuit breaker she needed. Yes. Paul went down and got a yogurt. Mum finished it off. Can I have another one? Right. And I realized what I had to do. I basically was there for two weeks. I turned up every lunchtime, every dinner time at the hospital, made sure she ate. She yep. got better. She lived for about another year. year. Um, mm. But it was, uh, you know, now I've got a kid who's, uh, so 2010, so Anna would be seven. Andrew would be five. I've now got a profitable business. My dad's passed away. Mum's not very well, but looks like she'll get better. And you start to think about other things in life. Yes. How much life does Aussie Home have on its own? Six or seven staff in Netherlands. Realistic.com is immense, right? I remember realistic.com when they were post.com crash were valued at six million. Yeah. Today they're valued at nine billion. So they were obviously the category killer. They had come once they bought property.com way back in 2003. That put clear daylight between them and everyone else. Everyone else, including us, was really just eating the table scraps. And I looked at Rewa and I thought, you know, Rewa.com could be way better. It was number two in the marketplace in WA, owned by the um, real estate agents. I thought Rewa.com could be doing a way better job. It, it could be punching much harder at realestate.com, keeping them honest. Right? Maybe I like the David and Goliath Yep. Maybe that's in me. I don't know. I always like the underdog. Maybe that's, I still support the English cricket team. Sad, isn't it? Um, the Dockers support them. You know, I came to Perth. Everyone at Hale loved the Eagles, but John Inverarity was on the board of the Dockers, used to give me tickets. Here you are, Charles, have some tickets. Yeah. And I was, so I fell in love with the Dockers and they were shockers as they were this year, but they certainly were back then. So, um, what was I talking about? Oh yeah. So I was thinking, well, maybe there is an opportunity here with Rewa to do something better. I came back from England when mum, you know, had a bit of a turn and she looked like she was getting better. I came back and I heard that the guy that was running Rewa.com, English guy actually, who'd been managing Rewa.com was leaving. So I contacted the CEO of Rewa and I went and had a coffee with her. And I didn't go with the intention of selling the company, but I wanted to work, find out who was going to be running Rewa.com. And whether something Aussie Home could do, maybe we could help them somehow. Maybe we could merge the sites and manage it for them. Or I, I was thinking, I don't know what I was thinking. So I sat down with Anne, um, weirdly at the same uh, same place that uh, Barry Humphreys got that meal from at the end of Hay Street. Um, what is that place? I remember it. Oh, goodness me. It's not the OBH because that's in Singapore. Uh, that's in Cottesloe. Cottesloe. But the one in uh, Subiaco, just opposite... Regal Theatre, it's gonna, gonna kill me. Yeah. Um, anyway, the, sat down there, had a coffee, and she said, after a bit of a, you know, small talk, okay, what's this about? And I said, well, I'd just like to know now that, um, so and so's left, who's gonna be running Reba.com? Now she could have said, none of your business. Yep. Instead, she said, so she's the CEO of Rewa, right? Instead, she said, interesting. Um, it's quite a specific skill. There aren't many people in Perth who've run real estate websites and know how to run one. To which I said, what about me? And she said, oh, that's interesting. How's that going to work? I said, I don't know. I've just said it. Yes. We better go and talk to Neville. Neville's the CFO and is currently the CEO. And you know what? From that cup of coffee to deal done, six weeks. 
signed by the council. It was like a deal waiting to happen. And then I had to sell it to my staff um, and sell it to my shareholders and sell it to my clients, some of whom weren't even REWA members and loathed REWA. Mm. So that was interesting. But it all worked out. All the staff, REWA were great to my staff. They all got full-time jobs. They all got um, at least the salary they were on at Aussie Home. Yeah. And I got to run REWA.com. And we got an exit for the shareholders. Um, and that was a really, a Nick got an exit and it was all a fantastic thing really. And I, then I had, I thought I'd be at Rewa for years and years and years. Um, and there I was at Rewa running Rewa.com. And I remember going away from meetings going, I've just got the best job. I'm running Rewa.com. This is awesome. Giving it up to realestate.com. This is excellent. Mm. You know, and I've been talking to the West for about 12 years. And I'd seen three different CEOs in that time. And each time I saw, so it's the West Australian newspaper, hmm. for those people who listen to this, not in Perth. And the West Australian newspaper used, used to have all the classified income. So when I first came to Perth, and in fact, before that, when I was in Singapore, the real estate section was 120 pages. Right. Thick. And the car section, and the job section, and the boat section. It landed like a boom, like a... Earthquake on your stoop every every Saturday, right? And the Sunday Times the same. I saw that whole classified income just leech away from the print and go online. And ended up, the real estate one ended up with realestate.com. And a bit of it with us on the way. That was really the trend that helped us. And I'd been to see three CEOs at the West during that time. And each one was kicking the tin down the road. They were kicking the can down the road. They were poo-pooing the internet. They were saying, oh, it's not going to happen. Oh, yeah, we've tried some experiments. It's not going to work. And da-da-da, making all these excuses. And a wonderful irony, when I get to Rewa.com, I'm running Rewa.com and I'm with Rewa, I'm with Anne and Neville. One of the first meetings in the first week at Rewa was sitting uh, with the CEO of the West, um, Chris Wharton, who's just since left uh, recently, um, and a deal is done so that Rewa.com does the West's real estate website. I thought, wonderful irony yes. that my team from Aussie Home ended up building westrealestate.com.au because we'd sold to Rewa. It was just like, oh, that was Gold. a great end to that story. Gold. Mm. So then you move to business news. Mm. How yeah. That, how did that come about? Uh, I'd been a great fan of WA Business News as it was. Yes. And they'd been going since 1993. Um, they'd written some nice articles about me. Um, I'd been a 40 under 40 winner way back in 2003 when I was under 40. And I knew and respected uh, the owner, Elton Swartz, um, the two Marks, Mark Powell and Mark Beyer. Um, I'd been a subscriber for 10 years. Uh, and I think they probably did stories on me because the West and the Sunday Times wouldn't really because they saw me as competition even though I actually got quite good media coverage on various pages over time. And maybe they saw me as an internet entrepreneur guy who'd sort of been around. And they came to me with advice. They knew that printing papers was not going to be their future. So I had a few pies and coffees with Elton and Mark. And eventually I just so was so entra entranced by their strategy it was like a financial time strategy. We've got all this data from the book of lists. We're going to make it online. We're going to have it available. We're changing our name to business news. We're doing this new brand. We're 
the paper's going to be like this. The online's going to be there. We're going to subscribe because of here. We're going to rebuild up content with advertising and events. And I thought, do you know what? They never had classified income to lose. They already have people subscribing since 2002. Yes. They might have a chance in a niche. They've got an interesting audience. I reckon they've got a chance. And if you don't go in now and help, um, media might not even exist in five years' time in the way we know it. And I thought, now, there's an opportunity right now. And I'd sort of been doing online real estate by then for 13 years. Yes. And I thought, time for a change. I, I did teaching for 13 years, and I did online real estate for 13 years. There you go. And uh, I thought, well, I'll give this a go. So I went in as general manager of digital. One of the best things I did, and a great advice to anyone who's doing a sort of career change like this, I took a month off in between. Yes. I've been going bang, bang, bang for 26 years, and I took a month off. It was brilliant. We had um, a week in Paris. We had a week in London. We had a week in Halifax with my brother. Um, saw lots of people uh, that I hadn't seen in 20 years. They hadn't seen my kids. I hadn't seen their kids. Fantastic. And I w- no emails because I'd left Rewa, so no email from Rewa. No emails from business units because I wasn't even there yet. It was like, oh, fantastic. Take a real clean break yes. before you start something new. And then I went in and helped business use do their whole transformation. Mm. Mm. How was that? That was tough. <laughs> what made it tough? <laughs> People expect news to be free. Yes. I think it was a Daily Telegraph in 1996 or 97. Who's the culprit? They basically, again... Didn't, they completely underestimated the power of the internet. So you got a big print paper in England. They decided, oh, we'll have a website. We'll just throw our content on there, and then we'll sell some ads and see if that works. Like yeah. They saw it probably as extra income. Yeah. See if we can monetize this internet thing. thing. What they did, of course, is they got everyone used to free news. You wind on another 15 years, everyone expects news to be free. There's a 1,000 websites you can get news from now. Mm. Who's going to buy a paper tomorrow? Why would you buy a paper? It's yesterday's news. The ink comes off in your hands. What? What? Yeah. Why would you even do it? Tomorrow, Who would do it? Tomorrow's fish and chip wrapping. My kids will probably never even open a newspaper or a magazine, <laughs> right? And they're now 15 and 13. So it's tough. But we did have these subscribers and we did have an influential business audience. So it sort of worked. So I don't want to underestimate how hard it was. But if you look over the four years I was at Business News, we managed to grow the traffic fivefold. I think there were around 30,000 unique visitors a month when I got there. When I left in June, there were 170,000. So that's not easy to do. Behind a paywall, grow the traffic fivefold. Proud of that. How did you do that? Um, employing some absolute brilliant people who know how to do search engine optimization, search engine marketing, remarketing, all these sort of guys. So right. I've met a few people who really know how to do it. Playing the algorithms. And they know what they're doing and they're experts in that. And, you know, there's a few companies in Perth. They all seem to be centered in Subiaco who know what they're doing. Right. And you find a good one and you stick with them. Um, so really it was that. Um, I think um, WA Business News or Business News is known now has a good reputation. People stuck with us. The percentage of people who renewed their subscriptions rose to an all-time record. It was hard to get new people on, but once we got them on, they loved the, loved the offer. It was quite a nuanced sell. It was quite difficult because you're selling data as much as news, mm. information, a search engine we called BNIQ, quite tough. What does BNIQ do? So business news IQ, it's like um, Bloomberg for WA. So it has in it 90,000 articles, all searchable, 
uh, 28,000 people, all with their own page, in some cases showing what they earn, what they own, deals they've been involved in, right? everything Profile like that. But where it's like LinkedIn and Google and Bloomberg had a baby. Right. Just for WA. Amazing. So if you're in business, it's an incredible resource. And when people see it, they go, well, why did I not know this was available? Mm. And that's the challenge, getting quite a nuanced consultative sell out there. Um, and then you lay on, just as I joined, the economy goes into a downturn. Yes. So we're B2B. We're selling to businesses, and a lot of them are going out of business or got absolutely got no money for subscriptions or marketing. So that's double tough, right? So you're trying to sell news and data, quite a nuanced sell in a downturn economy. That was tough. But we got through it. Um, and How did you get through it? Well, I had to make some cuts. I mean, it got quite bloated during the boom. So mm. there had to be some cuts made. So um, I didn't have to fire many people or maybe <clears> be redundant, only about one or two, in fact. But uh, as some people left, I sort of thought, well, do we need to replace? Can yes. we just rejuggle? So everyone got a bit busier, but everyone knew it was like, it was this or, you know, we don't survive. And they loved the mission, you know, bringing business news and information to our clients. And the clients who got it, loved it, who subscribed, mm. they thought it was just genius. Just a matter of getting more on and getting more content and giving it um, time to survive. So by the end of the four years, content had overtaken advertising as our biggest uh, income source. Right. So subscriptions, people subscriptions. paying for content. Yeah. And what's cool about that is, and I think this is the way the media has to go, is you have to put up a paywall if you've got interesting content. Get people paying for something. Yes. Right? Subscription online, get enough of them, right? Get to a stage where it's then super profitable. Because then what you're doing is you're aligning your readers with your content. Mm. All the other models, so you take The Guardian, The Daily Mail, who are open and free, they have to sell ads, right? So really what you're doing there is you're aligning your content with your advertisers, not with your readers, yes. right? right? Which means you do salacious um, headlines to, get the click. to try and get the click. Clickbait yes. becomes prevalent. Anything to get as much clicks. And that's a, that's a dog's game because 90% of all digital marketing is going to Facebook and Google. You're competing against them. Good luck. So advertising, I always thought, is like the cherry on top. You get some advertising money, great. Mm. But really, you should be selling a service that people want to pay for. Yes. Create some value for them. When you create some value, they might pay. If they pay and you get enough of them and they keep paying, so they might means, be in business. Otherwise, I think you're stuffed. So that means you really need to understand your your customers. You really need to understand oh, yeah. what information they want. Absolutely. How do you do that? Absolutely. So we've had – so we I made a big thing when I came in and got the CEO gig, um, which was January 2015. So I'd been there about a year and a half. Um, the first thing I did was put up an MPS wall, so Net Promoter Score. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a way of making sure you are regularly – Asking your customers um, what they think of your service, would they would they actually promote it to somebody else? Only if they give you nine or ten out of ten is that seen as positive. Seven or eight is seen as neutral, and six or less is seen as negative. It's a very right. tough measure of customer loyalty. Mm. So I'm and I, and I got an I got a wall made, literally a big plastic thing. I stuck it up; everyone could see it. And every quarter, when we did our NPS surveys out to the paying subscribers and out to our registered users. We had 
48,000 people who got our emails in the morning, they were free and they could get limited access to our website. They can get seven clicks a month. Yeah. Right. So they were our free pool. Right. And the objective was trying to convince them to pay. Yes. Right. So we, we took their pulse of what they thought about us and all their comments. And we took the people who were paying and we sifted through it. We took it really seriously. Hmm. And we had customer focus groups every now and again as well. And we could see which stories are popular and which ones aren't, which categories are popular and which one aren't. We can, we can see when we, that's the wonderful thing about the internet. You get instant feedback on, um, on clicks and stuff so and views. what you're doing towards that. And we were part of a publishing group in America called the AABP, Business Publishers Group in America. There's no one like us over here in Australia. I think there was one in, Adelaide that went down a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years ago. And there was one in Brisbane that went away six or seven years ago. Mm. Business News is the only city-based business publisher left in Australia. Mm. In the States, there's dozens of them. But there's a group over there, 60 of them in the ABP. And we remember, we would get our best ideas from ABP. We'd go to their um, annual conference every every summer, every Northern Hemisphere summer, so June or July, I went to Charlotte, North Carolina. And what they can do with print and what they did with subscriptions and what they do with events is really impressive. I think the 40 Under 40 Awards actually came from America. The idea, I mean, Business News has been running it for 16, 17 years, but they brought that back from America. So that really helped. It was almost like having your like my advisory committee at Aussie Home. The ABP were like our little friends and cousins over the, yes. over the ocean, right? Mentors. Yeah. And then they would get ideas from us because they didn't have anything like BNIQ. In fact, I did a conference a keynote in Chicago all about BNIQ, and they said, mm. we got nothing like this. How do we get this over here? Because um, they they realized print advertising is falling. Print circulation is falling. Printing papers is not the future. Although you've got a slightly older audience, your know, average age 50, average income 350,000, quite a nice income, they're most likely to read papers it's not going to be the future. Mm. So surely subscriptions, digital information, data, and news, that could be the future. Mm. And business news is proving it. It's still around today. So there are two questions I've got. Mm. One's probably from a, a naive, I haven't worked in news background, is you're obviously taking information and data and you're commoditizing it and selling it. Where do you get your source of information from? Right. So... We have journalists, we have yep. contributors, so we've got about a dozen of them. We have data feeds in from Morningstar, which is all the ASX companies. The interesting thing about WA and Perth is that so we've got 700 or more public listed companies. We're recording this in West Perth. They're mostly around here, West Perth, yep. right? Um, there's only 2,000 on the ASX, but 750 of them are in WA. Right. They all have to publish their data. Right. So we... That feeds in a lot of data and stories. Also, for over 20 years, Business News has been publishing the annual Book of Lists. And the Book of Lists is now up to about 100 different industry lists with hundreds and hundreds of companies in each list, all ranked by different information. So the accountants list might be ranked by the number of client-facing accountants, right? Um, I curated a startups list, which was ranked by startup date. Right. So the latest startups are at the top and the yep. older ones are at the bottom. So these lists create a little bit of interest because people want to know where they are on the list. Right. Are they fifth? Are they third? 
that we publish them in the paper. They're now online. You can download them to spreadsheets. So as a subscriber, you get access to the list. Right. Say you wanted to hit up some lawyers. Say you needed a good lawyer. You download the list. You look at the list. Plays a bit of interest, especially if you start ranking things. Mm. Business News owns that space. So if you add the book of lists information with the mornings, which is mainly private companies, information you wouldn't get elsewhere, right? Yep. To the ASX information from Morningstar is coming in daily, right? Share price, total shareholder return, all their stories. To your stories, your 12 or so contributors and journalists are publishing every day. It's about 25 stories a day we publish. You've got a lot of information there. Yes. All you then have to do, saying, oh, it's a big job, is write the BNIQ search engine so you can do a simple little Google search of the whole lot. Right. And find out what you're looking for. Like research the gold industry or research a person or research a company or whatever. Yes. I suppose, um, and certainly the way you're describing it, you're transferring um, data and information. But how did the weight of responsibility sit on you in the fact that you were supplying data and information and did you were you sometimes offering perspective on that or was it just a neutral we had some opinion writers yeah so yeah. so what you're what, what you're in effect um trading mm. then goes on to shape the decision making of many other companies and therefore affects them and then from that the economy of western australia oh that's maybe a long I don't, bow to draw but yes i don't know but there is a certain amount of responsibility yeah, there that. is did that ever weigh upon you in this role Yes, it did. I remember someone saying to me once, what's it like to basically determine the conversations of St. George's Terrace? And I went, what do you mean? So like, that's everyone's, beautifully put the way, what I was trying to do. Everyone gets the email in the morning and the afternoon. And the stories that are on there and the order in which you put them denotes what we read and what we talk about. I went, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> do you know what I was more worried about, Brent? I was more worried about being sued. Right. I was thinking someone's going to come along and sue our ass, you know, mm. and we got insurance for that. And it actually only happened a couple of times we were there and, and we could sort it out. Yes. Right. Um, and in both cases, we'd actually made a minor technical error yeah. in a piece of a factual error. 99.5% of the story was completely right, but we Spot on. Mayor Culper, that bit was not right. Yep. And there you go, you put your hands up and say, I got that wrong. But considering we're publishing 25 stories a day and we're on these fast deadlines and I was there for four years. I thought it would happen far more often. And in yeah. fact, um, everyone was fairly cool about it. Mm. He says, the best defense is the truth. As long as you're telling the truth, yeah. you're fine. Mm. Oh, yeah, good point. <laughs> best defense I, is the truth. I, I guess I asked about the weight of responsibilities. I myself have become quite sensitive to media and news mm. in general and getting concerned about what I consume and what I don't consume and whether it's yes. credible or not. Because, you know, you know we, we, we live within a... Certainly here in Western Australia, we live within our own little sphere here. Yep. Yet we're constantly getting stories of things that are going on in North Korea and America mm. and stuff like that. And then everybody seems to have an opinion on the matter here. Yet nobody's actually left Western Australia and gone and investigated it. Well, I think so, a lot of the media, because they um, are really engaging now in entertainment and clickbait, they, um, they I'm afraid, play on fear. Yes. And they push that as much as possible because they know that sells. That gets eyeballs. Yes. Right. And I think people are more fearful 
And the people in power quite like that because that's how you control people. Mm. Uh, and I'm very concerned about that. So I'm all for more information that people are paying for, like they're paying for the content and actually it's more reliable, it's dependable, it's trustworthy, right? And it's got perspective and independence and balance, yep. right? Not just screaming people on the right, screaming people on the left and warmongers here and fearmongers there just shouting at you because yeah. there's so much media. How do you cut through? Scare the bejesus out of people and, and fearmonger like mad because then they'll get noticed. So it's the Breitbarts or the Fox Newses or the others. They're all loons doing this stuff. And that I'm really worried about. The state of media at the moment is, I think, appalling. Um, and we're going to lose media. We're going to lose. And we are. Journalist jobs are disappearing. And what happens when they're all gone? Where are you going to get your independent, fair, balanced, proper? Well-trained. Well-trained, exactly. You know, fair, balanced information from. You're going to be left with the Trumps of this world with tweets, right? PR press releases and spin merchants and clickbait and fear. And I, I'm re I'm really concerned about that. And that was really what drew me to the Business News Project. But can we... In little old, you know, West Australia, the most isolated capital city in the world, in a little area, a little niche, in a business media, it can we make something? Yeah, on one level, because yeah. we are isolated. Can we make it work? Mm. Can we? Can mm. we find a way forward? And I thought that's a challenge. That's a roll your sleeve up challenge. Yeah, and I think they are making it work mm. because they're the last remaining doing so, and um, you know they're growing their subscriptions and their events are great and. You know, they're growing their digital advertising. Obviously, print advertising is still there, but probably not going to be there forever. And maybe the print product will disappear. When I was there, we moved it from weekly to fortnightly. I saw all the effort in weekly. I thought, surely, and in fact, it was Elton's brilliant idea. We were discussing it one strap meeting. He said, move it fortnightly. And I went, that's what we should do. And maybe they'll move it monthly eventually, and maybe the print will go. Um, half the publishers in America are, are fortnightly or monthly. They're not weekly. Not all of them, but half of them are weekly, half of them a lot. So where do you go for your news? Um, do you know, having left business news three months ago, I appreciate it even more now. I love it. I'm on business news two or three times a day. I read right. the emails morning and afternoon. Um, I like the news, BBC News app and I like the ABC News app um, because I want not what Fox calls fair and balanced, actually fair and balanced public broadcaster and i get it from podcasts so I, I i love i listen to about 20 different podcasts of all different mm. varieties both locally here and, and all over the place i think that's amazing in dead time when you're driving around you can just get it yeah i used to turn on news radio now i'm listening to podcasts likewise yeah that's how i got here right yeah. doing your own podcast yeah, for that's you. how i did it yeah yeah but um yeah i think more and more <clears throat> latching on to finding the opinions and almost the the vibe or the frequency that different people are putting out through podcasts you can find some that don't work for you mm. some that do and you latch yep. on and you go yep i think it's uh more organic and more approachable um i myself personally now struggle with all the mass yeah the mass media you know um don't go down the fear route, okay, Bryn? I know, I know. I, I, none of the none of the real stories are supposed. To you must listen fear. to this podcast, or you will die. Yes. Well, the idea is, if there is any fear, you do come out the back end of it. Indeed, but uh, no, you're right. I mean, you only have to look at how many times do we see shark stories on the front of the west? Uh, 
Please. Personally, I love it because it keeps the beaches um, <laughs> less busy. But there you go. So, um, we'll well, there's, there's an example. Yes. I mean, how many people have actually been killed? Seriously. Yeah. Okay, it's terrible when it happens, but yeah, yeah, a little yeah. bit overly dramatic about this. True. It's very gory. It's very fearful. We can pull up, fear, we sure. can pull up jaws. See? Yeah. See how the media works? Indeed. Mm. I mean, I swim down at the Port Beach Polar Bears and... Whenever a story comes up, it's always up on the board and the old guys are going on about it. Mm-hmm. And, and I love it because it means less people are down at the beach, less people in the ocean swimming. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like a bit of space. That's why I came to Western Australia. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. And um, we'll go through um, business news. Yep. And, and now you are looking at um, still continuing the technology mm. disruption. And have recently you've become one of the uh, commercialization accelerators. Yep. Can you tell us a bit more about that? And, uh, and I'm intrigued to know a bit more about the support you're providing, the, the focus that it, it's, it's going towards in terms of the company and the ideas. And also yep. um, a bit more of a feel for what the startup scene in Perth mm. is like. Is yep. it vibrant? Is it yeah, yeah, yeah. Where does it need to go? Right. Yeah. Well, that's really a good place to start because when Nick and I started Aussie Home, there was no startup scene. Mm. And after about two or three years, we just about, you know, got ourselves on our two feet and we were sort of cash flow positive and profitable months, unprofitable months. We were sort of okay. We were growing. Um, we started bumping into other people who were doing it, like um, Clay um, Cook from INeedHits.com. It's now called Bonfire. It's been rebranded, but back then it was called I Need Hits. And Matt McFarlane from Minty.com and... Laurie uh, from seabreeze.com.au, an amazingly successful site. I thought oh, I, yeah. I thought I had um, good traffic at Rewa with 50,000 visitors a day. He's got four times that, yes. and it's just him. Yes. And he's written every line of code. Yeah. I mean, incredible. Especially these brown arrows. <laughs> <laughs> so he bumped into these people, and they're all in different spaces, but we're all sort of solving similar problems. And we formed a group called eGroup. Right. Which Jackie coined. Jackie became the CEO of INeedHits.com. And we formed that group and we met ad hoc. And it still meets to this day. It's a not-for-profit internet entrepreneurs group. And I still go along every month. Um, and we realized that there wasn't really a community, but there was all these people. And eventually got to about 2012. I'm now at Rewa. I've sold Aussie Home. The first startup weekend happened at Perth's first co-working space, Spacecubed. So Spacecubed opened in 2012, right opened by a great guy called Brody McCulloch down on um, uh, 45 St. George's Terrace. So it's in right. the Vocus building, mm-hmm. um, quite opposite uh, London Court down there on St. George's Terrace. And it was basically an old bank, empty space. They've even got a big vault where the money was and all very trendy. And he put in sort of wooden... Uh, structures and circles and lots of throw pillows and cardboard and um, cork on the walls and stuff like that. And it's all this sort of funky co-working space where people can just hire a room for an hour or hire a desk for a month or just use it as a base on the terrace. And you go down there and there's all these guys just coding away or you know, a yep. dozen different companies all doing it simultaneously. Startup Weekend was amazing. I went down as a mentor. I met some other people who'd been in various cool uh, IT businesses such as uh, – Claire, who's now doing AppBot, Marcus Tan, who's now the CEO, was and still is CEO of um, Health Engine. Uh, I'm meeting some other people now. There's a bit more of a community, and now we've got a space to meet. And Startup Weekend is is amazing. Have you ever been to one? No. There's another. There's the. They've had ten. There's the eleventh one coming up in November. 
100 people can pitch uh, to get a spot on Startup Weekend. You can get up for one minute with your idea. You're not to have worked on this idea before, right? Um, so I remember a guy called Kevin Brown. He's a great guy. Um, he got up and said, I want to, a Scottish guy. I want to create a machine that predicts the future. Don't know how I'm going to do it, but I need some coders, some designers, and we'll just smash it out. Okay. And, <laughs> you know, it's those sort of crazy moonshot ideas, yeah. right? And it's just over the weekend. So out of the 100, you might get about 17 groups forming, and you'd have a mixture of entrepreneurs, marketers, designers, programmers, app developers in that group. And they just smash it, and they pivot, and they do this. That's not going to work. Bang. By Sunday, most of them have a finished product, like on the Google Android store or website. Some of them even have revenues by Sunday. Amazing. And I went, wow, there's some talent in this town, right? This is impressive. And I just was thought, well, look, I'd done my startup. I got out okay. Maybe it's time to give back. So I mentor, advise. I've been a pitch coach. I've been a judge. Um, and, you know, Perth Morning Startup Setup, which is like a meetup every second Wednesday down at Space Cube. It's now got thousands of members. Yes. Uh, I go to that whenever I can. And, and there's always new people joining. So we're going, okay, this is interesting. You're, you're, we're, for various reasons, amazing with us mining slow down. People are getting kicked out of Rio and they're taking some mm. money. I'm going, when am I going to do my startup? I'm going to do it now. Yes. If ever I'm going to do it, they hire, a, they it's hire, prime time for it here in Perth. They hire a seat at Space Cube and off they go. Right. And they're plugged into the community straight away because there is a place for the community. And there's Sync Labs in Leaderville. And now Brody's opened up Flux, which is a three story co working space further up the terrace in the Hawaiian building. Um, and I just read on business news today. Uh, there's one in Yanchip called Y Hub, you know, right. $10 million development with a co working space. There's co working spaces in Balcata. And there is this sort of, <laughs> call it a subculture, but there's this group of startups, hundreds of them, mm. all running around with these ideas at various stages. But the big um, gap, the so-called valley of death, right? They might have put their own money in. They might have got a payout from being made redundant or yes. some savings or they've got a rich aunt or whatever it is, and they've cobbled some money together and they're doing something, but they're not quite got enough scale to right, get to market or get to that sort of period that we finally got to after three, five years. Yes. The so-called valley of death. This is where there's a huge gap, a funding gap, because right. your venture capitalist is not going to look at you yet, right? Um, those people that go on to Shark Tank very rarely have an idea. They've already got a business and a revenue. That's when yes. VCs start, right? And it starts at a half a million dollars and up. You're not going to want to list on the stock market yet, even though some have. There's, there was a rash of what are called backdoor listings a few years ago right. where you always think, uh-oh, this is a bit of a worry because mining went down. What's the next thing? Let's turn a mining company that's listed into a tech company that's a startup. Mm. So we've seen some disasters there. Won't name any. <laughs> and, okay, we've got some angel funders. So angels are the people that backed us, right? People who are fairly wealthy. They'll, they'll pop in 10 grand or maybe 50 grand or maybe more. And you can cobble together a quarter million dollars and buy a bit of runway. These days it's cheaper. You, for 10, 20 grand, you could be out there getting customers and revenue. So some money can get you a long way. But, there was a period, you know, a few years ago where we didn't have any accelerators here, you know, actual organizations that 
companies can go into, be mentored, and be pumped out the other side. Right. Now there are half a dozen different accelerators. And are there any specific sort of business ideas and sectors they're looking at? They completely vary. But as you'd expect, quite a few of them target mining. Yes. So quite a few software targeting the mining industry or targeting government, because really this is a mining slash government town. Mm. Um, and there has been a lack of funding. It's getting better. The other day I went to a pitch night and everyone who got up and pitched has actually raised some money, some serious money, like 250 to a million. Yeah. Back five years ago, no one was raising that sort of money. Right. Marcus Tan, who I spoke of earlier, Health Engine, they raised uh, a, a huge amount of money uh, from Sequoia Capital, who were like blue blood Silicon Valley investors. Right. You know, um, just a few months ago, you know, they're on their way. They're like the real estate.com of doctor appointments, right? Um, so they're starting to be done deals. Isatana raised $8 million a few weeks ago, uh, which is like video detective, tells you what's in the video. Etc. I don't know. I understand it's beyond me. Yeah. Sorry, Isatana, and Matt McFarlane will kill me for that because he's he's one of the directors. But uh, yes. you know, they're starting. There's some momentum going. So my new role, accelerating com- commercialization, is a federal government program. You can get matching funds of up to a million dollars for an innovative, novel idea that has yet to hit market. So you've got to be pre-revenue, but you've got a working prototype. Yeah. So you you probably sunk your own money into it. You've probably been doing it for a while. It's new, right? It's novel. There's a definite market. You've got customers ready, but you haven't quite got enough money to finish it off and trial it and get it out there. Right. Right? And this program has been going in one shape or another for 15 or so years. It used to be called, back in my day, the Comet program. Right. Then it was called Commercializing Australia. Now it's called Accelerating Commercialization. And it's a fairly sizable Fund. I mean, the, in the budget, in the federal budget, it's a 480 million plus right. item, you know, forward estimates. So I was at a panel session in Canberra uh, in my first week a few weeks ago, and there were, I can't tell you the details, but there were 16 or so companies that were going up to the board, and it's the board that decides whether you get the money or not. And there was, you know, quite a sizable amount of money being given. You know, there was mm. some getting 200, potentially some getting 700,000. You've got to have matching funds. Yes. But it, for your investors, that's doubling up the money that you've got. Yeah. And it's de-risking things for the investors. And for the government too, it's clever because they've already got a prototype. They're ready to go to market. Yep. Now we'll just go in there where there's already some private money. So we'll just help assist get these to the market. So it's a great program. There's not much money, if any, at the state level. So um, there was, I think Mike Nahan put in $20 million in last year's budget for startups, but they just lost power. So yeah. I don't know what the new lot have got. I haven't yet seen what they've really got in terms of money. There's a, I think there's talk of 12 or $13 million somewhere. I don't know what that'll do much, but yes. you know, this program can um, really make some difference. Create some jobs. Have some fun. So I'm now running around seeing these really great innovative companies in Perth and helping them. Well, I don't decide ultimately to get the money, but I help them uh, and advise them and, and get them to the stage where they can mm. make the final application, hopefully get some dollars and get their thing commercialized. How does somebody out there who's hearing this access you? 
Uh, go to the accelerating commercialization. I mean, it's a pretty strange term. So if you put that into Google, you'll find the website, yes. Department of Industry website, and all the details are there. Mm. And then they can contact um, the program, really. Um, they officially, they, they, I mean, they can contact me, but they officially lodge an expression of interest, which is, that gets you into the system. Yes. That gets you, aha, flagged. And then um, Cheryl Frame and I are the two full-time advisors in Perth. There's mm. 22 or WA. There's 22 of us in the country. And there's a guy, a lovely guy called Alan Aaron, who sort of flits halfway between New South Wales and WA. So we've sort of got right. two and a half advisors. And I'm um, now becoming quite popular because people think, oh, Charlie's given away a million dollars. Awesome. Awesome. Let's go and see. Let's go and have a cup of coffee. Yeah. It's quite an arduous process. Uh, uh, my, my new boss, Larry Lopez, lovely guy who's actually originally from Silicon Valley, but lives in Perth. Um, he is the director of Accelerating Commercialization. He describes it as, um, Charlie, it's, uh, it's hard money, but it's free money. Mm. You know, it, it'll take probably on average five months to go through the process until you get any money, if at all, right? And, but you don't have to pay it back and it doesn't take any equity. So it doesn't dilute anybody. Right. So that's pretty good for... For someone with a novel product, one in a market, that's a pretty good system. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm. And in successful pitches, um, entrepreneurs that have developed things and, and gone on to be a success, beyond mm. the product itself, what do you see in terms of what goes on in the mindset and the head of, of people who seem to be successful? Right. Don't. Can you do you almost sit there and listen to them beyond the pitch? The pitch could be awesome. Yeah. The, the product could be awesome. Mm. But you actually sit and listen and can yeah. you pick it quite quickly? Uh, and it's not the product. Yeah. Because the product will change anyway. It'll evolve and pivot <clears throat> and respond yeah. to, the, to the consumer demand. So what I look for always, and I get a lot of people coming to see me when I was a you know, mentor, advisor, but also business news because they'd like to be featured in business news or whatever. I put myself out there and say, yep. I'll happily talk to anybody who's got an idea I'll buy the coffee because you're a startup. I know yes. what it's like. Yeah. But I want to hear what big, hairy customer problem they're solving. Yeah. Right? That's what I want to hear. I don't want to hear about the great app that they spent $300,000 on. It's in the app store. And it's got all these features and it's wonderful. Yeah. Feature bashing is useless. The worst salesman falls in love with their product. The best salesman falls in love with the problems of their customer. Right. So what problem are you solving big, hairy, global problem that no one else has seen, but you've seen it yep. and you can pull it off and tell me why you're going to pull it off. Why you and your team are the people are going to pull this off because the most likely outcome is you're not going to, right? So tell yes. me how you're going to. Like it. That's number one. What problem are you solving? Because only if you're solving a problem are you creating value for the customers. Mm. Only if you're creating value for them will they pay. Only if you pay might you be in business. And then, this is some of the don'ts, right? Don't tell me how, you know, oh, it's China. China's 1.3 billion people. <laughs> and if we only get 0.05% of the market, we'll make 20 million in the first year. The China number syndrome. I've heard it so often. Yes. If someone comes to me with that as a pitch, right, I take out my shotgun, literally, they're going to get Shoot. taken down. Brilliant. Don't give me the China number syndrome. Tell me how your first client and why your first client is going to buy from you, who they are, what value you're creating, and how many of those are there? 
And how many markets are there, right? Slice the market. Uh, boil the kettle. Don't try and boil the ocean. So tell me how you're going to kill one vertical slice of a market, mm. but then it's got loads of other slices over here and loads of rep- – and you can just rinse and repeat. And yeah. then you'll make your 20 million. Yes. But no one makes 20 million in the first year. So don't give me these hockey stick, unbelievable projections. Yes. Right? It took us took us six years to get to a million dollars, Aussie mm-hmm. How long did it take you to clearly define the problem you were fixing? Didn't know at the beginning because at the start, I made all the mistakes, Bryn. <laughs> at the start, I thought I was solving the problem of the home searcher. Instead of waiting for the weekend papers, you can go to a website where you'll see properties on maps. But that's for my user. The user's not paying me money. Who's paying me money? Real estate agents. Whose problem do I have to solve? Real estate agents. took me 18 months to figure that out. (laughs) That's why I always tell people, figure it out before you launch. Yes. And we figured out, you know, real estate is not about selling properties. Yes, some real estate agents are great at it, but. What it's actually about, and if you sit them down quietly and don't broadcast this on a podcast, but if you say to them, <laughs> get a few whiskeys inside I the them, mute button? no, no, <laughs> they will admit it's all about listings. It's all about getting really good properties to list. That's what it's about. A really good property priced and presented well will sell. Now, yes, some real estate are better at selling than others, but what the game is really about is getting listings. List and last, as they say. Right. And that's an open secret, I think, in, in real estate. So they will spend a lot of time prospecting and marketing themselves to get a really good listing. That's what the real estate agent wants. And then they will sell it. Mm. And then, because they got the exclusive license, they will make their, their money. So the light bulb came on. It took us 18 months. I went, it's all about the listing. That's why we do websites. That's why we do a magazine. Give them the edge in the listing interview. That's why we do Aussie Home. That's why we feed them to all these websites, single data entry, just enter into our system, goes on all these websites. We're going to make them look good in their marketing, yep. right? And we're going to bring innovations to them and make them look great so that they have the edge over the other guys and girls who they're going up against in the pre-listing interview, right? Yep. When you, Bryn, are thinking of selling your property, you'll probably interview three or four real estate agents, right? Which one are you going to choose? It's going to be interesting. But this pro- and all one of them needs is to be a tiny bit better than the others because it's a zero-sum game. As, mm. as one guy's better, they get your listing. They get 100% of your listing, don't they? Yeah. Then they get 100% of the commission. That's what they're working for. Right. That's the real estate game. Awesome. Yeah. So understand the problem. Super. Mm. Coming back to Charlie. Yes, sir. Last couple of questions. What does success look like for Charlie over the next couple of years? Ah, well, I hope to discover and help some very innovative WA companies mm. release their potential, create lots of jobs, and help diversify the economy. I can't do all that on my own, but we've got the wonderful Cheryl and we've got the, all the other advisors running around the country. But this is a program that helps uh, companies commercialize their IP. Australia is, if you look at all the league tables, Australia is relatively poor at commercializing IP. When you look at the league tables in the OECD countries of innovation, Australia is right at the top, like top few. Yes. 
but on the commercialising that innovation, very poor. Yeah, that's what this program is about. So if I can help, love a bit. <laughs> if I can help, yes, that's what I want to do. And what about for you personally? Um, it's all about my kids who are going through school, getting to university. Oh, you know, I want to see them have successful careers. If there is such a thing as a career in the future, yeah, you know, I want to stay fit and healthy. Yeah. Um, something I'm looking forward to next year. I mean, we decided not to put our kids through private school, even though I was privately educated and I've, I've taught at private schools as well as government schools. But Lisa and I sat down and said, look, we've got Hale and St. Mary's there. Great. But we've got Churchlands. It's a great school. When I was teaching in Singapore, a couple of ex-Churchlands teachers were teaching there. I knew how good Churchlands was before I yeah. even arrived here. So I thought, we made a decision, public education, which I think is actually better for you, boys and girls together. Yeah. Right. Um, we will spend the money on great holidays. Wow. So at the moment, um, Lisa and the kids are in Singapore, seeing Lisa's mum. January will go somewhere nice. Next July, me and my two brothers and our families are all meeting up in the First World War battlefields of northern France. Oh, wow. 100 years after our grandfathers fought there. Wow. In homage to them. It's things like that that's important. You know, family. Um the last time the three brothers was together was my mum and dad's 50th wedding anniversary. So that's 2001, quite a while ago. Right. Um, the funerals, uh, actually, no, I lie. I think the last one was actually dad's funeral. Uh, Robert couldn't make Paul's funeral. Uh, couldn't make mum's um, funeral. So, But, you know, it's like getting the brothers together with the families. Um, I love the fact that my two are with their Singapore cousins at the moment. And went out for a curry last night. And I've also seen the photos on Facebook. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, it's sad that we're here. I've got Singapore cousins. I've got cousins over on the Eastern States, one of whom my kids haven't even seen yet, Richard, right. who's a lawyer in Sydney. <clears throat> and then cousins in England, mm. right? Um, and I, I, we want to, I mean, our brothers, the three of us have been talking about this for a while, manufacturing it. Get it, get it together so that we can get get all the cousins together. On Airbnb, we've got this um, mansion <laughs> that we've seen. It's ridiculously cheap. Yes. Yeah, Amiens, just north of Paris, and we're just going to book it and Excellent. just go in six, you know, it's, it's got six bedrooms, seven bedrooms, two-story hectare of land. So things like that. Yeah. Yeah. What does um, Charlie do to ground himself after mm. when things get really hectic and busy? My wonderful wife, Lisa. Right. So... Whenever I've had a major decision and a crazy decision like uh, I'm going to leave this safe, comfortable head of commerce job at Hale and do this crazy dot com, she's seen it in my eyes and she just said, go do it. Um, so when I've left Reba.com, who I thought would be there for years, I'm going to go into this business news thing. Yep. Now I'm CEO of business news. Good position. Good for brand Charlie. I think I want to leave business news. But I don't know yet what I want to do. There's this accelerating commercialization thing. I might get that. I might not. There might be a couple of CEO jobs coming up I'm interested in. Worst case, I might do some consulting in digital transformation. She just said, go do it. Wonderful. So she keeps me grounded. And my kids keep me grounded. And my dogs keep me grounded. Yes. Right? And my friends keep me grounded. Yes. You know, my good mate Jeremy, who I play golf with every weekend, who's a tradie, if you ever need a bathroom renovator, JS 
Baker, bathrooms.com.au. <laughs> there you go. JSBaker.com.au. Go see him. He's booked out six months in advance. He never yeah. advertises. I did his website for him for 20 bucks uh, on um, WordPress, 20 bucks to um, pay the cost of connecting the domain name to WordPress, right? Because I just thought he should have a website. <laughs> I don't know if anyone goes to it, but anyway. Excellent. It's things like that, right? It's your yeah. friends and stuff and, and obviously your family. That's To me, that's the most important thing. Um, and we live in beautiful, beautiful Perth. I mean, I, I should get down to the beach more. I don't. You should. You know, I should. Anyone who says they should, should get down sh- to the beach more should. I should <laughs> swim with the sharks. I should. They're not really there. <laughs> well, they're there, but they're not interested in you. You know, so, yeah. Cool. If you could go back to um, meet Charlie just before he started teaching and give him some advice, what would you give him? Oh, right back to 1986. I'm going to go back 30 years. Right at the start of it all. I think it's the same advice I give my kids, which is don't worry about it. Things will work out. Um, it doesn't really matter what you do. You can, you can actually, in your 20s, you can do a variety of things and you've got loads of time to recover. You've got very little to lose. I mean, you've literally got no, own no assets. I mean, I owned half a car, I think, yes. and a suit, and that was it, um, and lived in a rented house. And I was still 10-plus years away from owning a house. So what's going to happen? Hey, go to Singapore. There's an opportunity. Yeah, go to Singapore. Yeah. Who, who knows what will happen? You might drum in a band, meet the love of your life, and play cricket for, for the country. How cool is that? And go trekking in the Himalayas and Absolutely. meet some great people. Who knows? You know, and coming to Australia. So I would say to anybody, try different things. In your 20s, you've got to try three or four different things. Mm. And if you can't do anything else, teach, because teaching is an amazing job. And I think more people should do it, especially in primary schools. We need more guys as role models yeah. um, in primary schools. So, uh, and primary schools is where a lot of the behavior is, is set. Most, most behaviors are set by the time you're age seven. You've probably met, as have I, people in their 50s who don't understand the word no, right? Yeah. They get all tantrums when they get no. Obviously, mother didn't tell you no when you were seven, right? You know the sort of people I mean. And it's like all those behaviors are set. By the time they got to me when I was a secondary school teacher, there was actually, I felt, quite discouraged. There wasn't much I could do. I could tell almost within 10 seconds of a new class who the bright ones were, who was going to listen, who was just going to just drag along doing very little. Yeah. Those behaviours have been set. Right. Superb. Mm. Charlie, it's been awesome talking today. I've really appreciated your openness and candour on many subjects ranging from uh, the start of Fuzzy Homes. I've really enjoyed talking about business news. Right. News is quite a thing for me. Yeah. Uh, and also the accelerator at the end. I, th- I really appreciate your time. Um, I appreciate the time of anybody who's um, sat through and listened to this, and I hope you've mm. got a lot out of it. It was very long. It, well, yeah. I'd hope you'd edit it back. No, there's no editing. They're <laughs> oh all my real goodness. conversations. That's very long. You can you can listen to this not just necessarily in one sitting. Mind you, this advice should have been there at the start. Right, you? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yes, no, I, I uh, acknowledge anybody else who's been listening to that. To, to this, um, WA Reels about finding yourself in real stories. I think there's been plenty to find in there. Charlie, thank you very much. Thanks, Brent. Cheers. Oh my God, it was...